black one near you somewhere. Uh, if you want to grab that and, and open it up, uh, I would encourage you to do that. Um, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would invite you to take this Bible home with you and, and make it your own. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I'm going to pray for us very quickly, and then we'll, we'll jump into to the sermon. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of Jesus, that he really did live the perfectly obedient life that we could not live, that he really died on the cross, taking your wrath for our sin upon himself, dying in our place to give us forgiveness and grace. Father, we thank you for the truth of the resurrection that the grave could not hold him, that death is not the final answer for Jesus or for us. And so, Father, I pray that as we open your word and as we, as we study the claims that Paul makes here, as we take seriously the story of the gospel, that we would see just a few of the, the many reasons why it's safe to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that it is... It is it is life-changing good news that Jesus' tomb is empty. Father, we love you. We thank you for this day and this time together together. We ask that you would speak for your servants are listening. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I'm just going to tell you from the beginning, this is not, uh, this is not a normal sermon for me. Uh, normally, what I like to do is... is open up a text and, and walk through that text and, and explain every little detail so that you walk away saying, okay, that makes sense. I, I understand the story or I understand the argument that the scriptures are making. Today, is I, what we're going to do is, is what would be called an apologetic sermon. And what we mean by that is not that I'm going to apologize for anything, right? It comes from the Latin term apologia, which means to make a defense. And so we're going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the, the first section of it, and, and then I'm going to kind of lay before you reasons that you can trust the resurrection of Jesus just based on the biblical accounts, right? There, there are other, you know, there are, are historians from the time of Jesus that mention the fact that his tomb is empty. Uh, there are Roman government uh, uh, letters that talk about these Christians who claim that, that Jesus died and came back to life. Um, so, so there's other historical evidence outside of the Bible that makes it even more clear that that tomb really was empty. Uh, but I just want to give you some biblical arguments so that you can, you can walk away today feeling more comfortable in your belief that Jesus really did rise from the dead, okay? So before we jump into that, though, I, I, want, to, I want us to think about our need for the cross and the resurrection, and I want to do that by introducing you to someone. This is a picture of a man named Terry Peck. Terry is a 33-year-old aspiring rapper from Australia. And his rap name is Tupac. Hopefully some of you find that funny because I find it hilarious. And the fact that he's a 33-year-old aspiring rapper. But we can talk about that later. Um, so Terry 
went to a restaurant called Omeros Brothers Restaurant in Gold Coast, Australia, which is where he lives. This is a restaurant that sits on the beach, and, and he ate and drank $450 worth. That's American dollars, not, not Australian dollars. $450 worth of lobsters, oysters, baby octopus, beer, and liquor. All by himself. And before the bill came, he decided to leave the restaurant. And a waiter and, and another uh, staff member chased him on the beach, and he decided to jump into the ocean to get away from them. Eventually, the police were called. He was out in the ocean for over an hour. Finally, the police jumped on a jet ski, found him, and captured him. When Mr. Peck was arrested, he told the police he didn't want to pay because his two lobsters were overcooked. He felt like he shouldn't have to pay. I think it's more likely that a 33-year-old aspiring rapper uh, wanted to incur a high bill of debt and then have someone else pay for it. And the reality is, friends, that, that you and I are more like Mr. Peck than we realize. Our sin, every time we sin, we charge our debt either to ourselves or to Christ. And so the question is, what do we do with the claims of Christ? Did he really die on the cross for our sins and come back to life? Or is it all just an ancient fairy tale? So I want us to look at Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is wrapping up this long letter that he's written to a church that he cares deeply about. Um, Corinth was a church that, that was, was a part of Paul's first missionary efforts. There were many people in the Corinthian church that Paul led to Jesus by the preaching of his gospel. But the Corinthian church, was, it was a mess. We've talked about this before, but they were, they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper there was a, a young man who was sleeping with his stepmother. There was just, there was a lot of, of bad stuff going on in this church. And so Paul writes to them to encourage them in the truth of Jesus being resurrected or being crucified and resurrected and the fact that that is all that they need. They just need to trust Jesus and follow Jesus. And that, that these different issues and problems within the church, they're, they're, they're easily fixed if they view the problems through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And so finally, Paul wants to remind them of what the true gospel is and why it's important. And so he begins in chapter 15, starting in verse 1, by saying this, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So I want to trace very quickly the argument that Paul is making and some defenses of the resurrection that we can take from this teaching here. The first argument, and this is what Paul is going to say he, he put to the Corinthians as a first importance is this. Trusting in the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is what saves you. Trusting in the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is what saves you. What Paul teaches throughout his letters and what Jesus points to in his ministry, what the Old Testament points us to through the prophecy and the stories that are there, is the reality that you and I are guilty before God. A God who is holy and righteous and blameless. A God who is just, who cannot see sin and not demand payment for it. Friends, if you look at the Hitlers and Stalins and Bin Ladens of history and today and say they deserve hell because that is justice, you have to say the same thing about yourself. Your sins may be smaller right? They may not be as egregious. They may not harm the millions of people that those men have harmed, but the reality is before a holy and innocent God, you are guilty. And because of that guilt, and because of God's love for us, he sent Jesus Notice how Paul says that he died for the forgiveness of our sins according to the scriptures, and he rose according to the scriptures. Paul wants us to understand that the Old Testament was pointing to this. Even in those small sections of John that we read, there were multiple times when the prophets and, and moments from, from the first five books of the Old Testament are mentioned in that story. God had been planning Jesus' death and resurrection, we're told before the foundations of the earth, the lamb was slain. And so we come to this realization that the only way that people can be saved according to Christianity is in the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. So Paul moves on to this reality that Jesus died on a Roman cross and Hardly any historian will argue with that. There is ample evidence that there was a Jesus who lived in the, the Galilean and Jerusalem in the Judean area. He taught, he ministered, and he died on a Roman cross. But Paul is going to say it's not just enough to say that he died on a Roman cross, but that he died on a Roman cross to forgive sin. He died to pay our stupid bill of sin. All of the, the just to go back to our friend, right? All, you know, 
who buys two lobsters for themselves, right? I mean, that, just, that story blows my mind. But, but think about the silliness and the immaturity of our sin. And yet we dive headlong into it, and Jesus died for us. He took God's wrath meant for us. And when he said, it is finished, he wasn't talking about his life. He was talking about his payment for your sins. He was saying everything, past, present, and future, is paid for. It's finished. So Paul moves from that to the truth that we read from the Gospel of John. That Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb, and then his body went missing. He was buried in a rich man's tomb, then his body went missing. Joseph of Arimathea was a religious leader, and, a, and, and he came from a successful family, and he had become a follower of Jesus. In fact, we're told in the other Gospels that Joseph of Arimathea sat on the Sanhedrin. That was the... the the, the sort of religious council for Jewish people that held both Sadducees and Pharisees. It was the Sanhedrin that called Jesus guilty and sent him to Pilate. Now, whether Joseph was with them at that time or if he chose to stay away, we do not know, but he was a religious leader who became a follower of Jesus. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians around A.D. 55, the people in Jerusalem would know who Joseph of Arimathea is. They would know his family. They would know the property that he owns. Right? Like sometimes y'all still get me lost around here because you say, hey, when you get to so-and-so's farm, you turn there, right? And I don't know who so-and-so is and I don't know where their farm is, right? Just like you know who owns what property, you know who used to live where, the people of Jerusalem would have known who Joseph of Arimathea was. And, and John and Matthew and Mark and Luke, they all mention him because he was a real historical figure who really did give his tomb to Jesus to be buried. And then three days later, Jesus is missing. This tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers. And as manly and masculine as ancient fishermen may have been, as tough as Peter and James and John and Andrew were, they were not defeating Roman soldiers. It would be the equivalent of, of us taking about five or six of us and going and fighting Navy SEALs, right? We may be tough guys, but we're going to lose that battle. The body is missing when it was guarded by Roman soldiers and, and had a rock that was there, a stone to protect the body. I don't think it's possible for that body to be stolen. The next thing, Jesus appears first to women. Here's... So for 21st century people, this, this shouldn't mark us as strange, right? We, we see the intimacy that is there between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. She loves him, and he cares deeply about her. But 
in, in first century Judaism, women were held as second-class citizens. In fact, in a Jewish court at the time, a woman could not serve as a witness. So if someone was murdered and it was watched by a man and a woman, it wouldn't count because Jewish law said you have to have at least two witnesses. And if it was a man and a woman in the Jewish court, you only had one witness. So as John and Matthew and Luke, they tell us this story. They tell us that it was Mary and some of her friends that were also followers of Jesus. They are the one who finds the tomb empty. Now let me ask you a question. If you were making up this story, if you were trying to write a convincing account which you knew was fiction and you wanted people to believe, would you use witnesses who could not be used in court as your main witnesses of the main event? Of course not. You would want as much credibility as possible. And so for John and Matthew and Luke to mention that it was Mary Magdalene and the women that were with her that noticed the tomb empty first, it helps us realize that this really happened. That this is the actual order of events. Now, of course, Mary, she sees it's empty. She goes and she tells Peter. We read in John where Peter and John run to find out if it's true. But even then, right, we're told that John believed, but Peter didn't because he still hadn't put everything together, that the Old Testament pointed to this, that Jesus told them again and again, I will be crucified, and three days later, I will rise. The next thing that we notice is that over 500 people saw him. Again, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, this was about 20 years after the resurrection happened. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians somewhere around 80-50 to 80-55. And, and we, we are pretty certain that Jesus, his death and resurrection happened in 80-33, right? So this is, this is easily connectable with only 20 years between the event happening and Paul writing this letter. And he tells the people in Corinth, he says, many of them are still alive today. And he wants them to know this because they could go and speak to actual eyewitnesses of the event. They had the opportunity to write a letter to the church in Jerusalem and say, did this really happen? They could even jump in a boat and travel just a little bit and go to that, the, the church in Jerusalem and talk to people who saw Jesus after he came back to life. But this reality that over 500 people saw him, it's amazing when you look at the fact that in Acts chapter 2, you had 120 people that were gathered together in an upper room joyful over Jesus's resurrection and his ascension and waiting for the next movement of God. And then the Holy Spirit pours out on his people. And if you remember, Peter preached after that and 4,000 people come to faith. So you have this little 4,120 member church in Jerusalem. They're the only Christians on the entire planet. And by the time AD 100 hits, 
One million people are Christians. The gospel travels throughout the entire Roman Empire. And now granted, there were about 60 million people in the Roman Empire, so it's still a small percentage of people. But to go from 4,000 to 1 million in 70, well actually 65 years, is pretty amazing. And for all of those people to have access to someone who could say, yes, I saw the resurrected Lord. I interacted with him after his death. Friends, if it wasn't true, the Pharisees could have easily put an end to the early church. They could have taken his body and drug it down the street in a parade and said, this did not happen. But they never did it because he wasn't there. When you look at the persecution that the early church faced, when you come to the realization that 11 of the 12 apostles died deaths of martyrdom, and the other one, John, went to an island practically by himself to live out the rest of his life, when you think about the persecution that, that was laid on these men and the men and women that followed them, who dies for a lie? Who says, I am going to stake my life and existence for something that I know isn't true? Peter and Andrew, his brother, were both crucified by the Romans. But they did not want to be crucified in the same way that their Lord and Savior was, so they chose to be crucified upside down. There's no more evil and humiliating and painful way to die than crucifixion. And why would those two men, if they knew that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why? Would they die for the gospel? The next point. Paul's life was radically changed by Jesus. Paul's life was radically changed by Jesus. Again, almost every historian will tell you that there really was a man named Paul who was the one who spread Christianity through his writings and through his missionary efforts. Now, here's the thing about Paul. In the book of Galatians, okay, which almost every New Testament scholar, believer or unbeliever, will tell you Galatians is the earliest writing that we have from Paul. And in Galatians, Paul tells us that he used to be a Pharisee and he was a Pharisee that was rising in the ranks, but he left Phariseeism because he met the resurrected Christ. Now, let me tell you something about the Pharisees. They were the most popular religious group among Jews at the time, right? We don't see that because most of the time, who's Jesus' enemy in the New Testament? It's the Pharisees, right? But the Pharisees were the ones who knew their Bible the best. They were the ones who showed their love for the Lord with all their wonderful prayers and, you know, their days of fasting when they wouldn't wash their hair and they looked really gaunt and sick. They were the ones who people said, that's a spiritual hero right there. I wish I could be like him. So you have respect. On top of that, the Pharisees, because of their connections within the Jewish community, almost always did well 
right? It's, it's kind of like the, the joke about towns in, in the southeast United States, um, you know, like in, in Mississippi and Alabama, that like, you know, every, every business owner is a member of the First Baptist Church in those towns because it's, it's financially advantageous for them to do that, okay? Um, now, I think sometimes that's a little overblown. I think a lot of those men love the Lord. And, but, but anyways, um, as a Pharisee, your businesses would do well. As a Pharisee, your hands were often, you know, you'd get the, the $100 bill snuck in your hand to thank you for your ministry and what you're doing. The Pharisees were, were popular and powerful, and many of them were doing very well financially. And Paul was one of the rising stars in the Pharisees. So why in the world would he leave that from, from a purely human perspective, to all of a sudden go racing around Europe to tell Gentiles, right? Not even his own people, but to tell people that he had grown up to, you know, I mean, the whole Old Testament is be separate, be different, don't be like the other nations. And now he's going to go to those very nations and say, believe in the Jewish Messiah so you can be saved, and he's going to give up all of his riches and all of his prestige. He's actually going to pay for his own mission work by selling tents, right? He would go to a town and he would preach. And then when he wasn't preaching and discipling, he would make tents and sell them to help pay for his travel and his food. It makes no earthly sense for Saul the Pharisee to become Paul the Apostle, unless on the road to Damascus, when he was going to arrest and imprison Christians, he really did meet Jesus. So if Jesus really did die on a Roman cross, and his grave really was empty, and this church blossomed and boomed, and this man named Saul became Paul. I put those things together, and friends, I can't not believe the resurrection. And I understand the logical and the scientific and the, the philosophical leaps that we have to take, right? As a pastor, I have seen plenty of dead bodies, I've seen the lifelessness that is there. I realize the claim that we make today. But friends, I want to tell you that when you place your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it's not just a historical fact to hang your hat on. It is a life-changing truth. And so, as we think about this and as we kind of tie things up and finish, if the resurrection is true, then everything is different. If the resurrection is true, then everything is different. If it's true, unbelievers must repent and believe. If it is true, believers must follow him. We must obey his commands and take seriously the things that he took seriously. And if it is true, 
We have the greatest news in the world. Why would we hold it to ourselves? We must get out and tell people about the good news of Jesus. Friends, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the greatest news you will ever hear. Let's trust it and take it everywhere we go. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the historical veracity of Jesus' resurrection. Father, I pray that as we we kind of soak and simmer on on 1 Corinthians 15 and and the gospel accounts of the resurrection and, and the truths that have been presented to us today, that, Father, we will... We will look at this with humility. We will look at it with, with the, the reality that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And God, I pray that, that you will help every heart and every mind see clearly on this matter. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.